0: Luke sixteen verse nineteen to thirty one Fu Bintia 打发拉撒路来 用直头肩沾点水, 凉凉我的舌头, 以致人要从这边过到你们那边他们有摩西和先知的话可以听从 Now in English, Luke 16, 19 to 31. The rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warm them, so that way they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, "If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead." This is the word of God.
1: So I, uh... Awkwardly knock on the glass of this front door, and there's already a line that's formed outside that stretches and wraps around the sidewalk. People are waiting an hour before dinner service even begins. They let me in early because I'm there to volunteer. I'm the new guy, and as I quickly learned, I'm actually the only volunteer who doesn't live upstairs and take part in the recovery program run by the same organization. So. I shake a whole bunch of hands and I try to remember their names and then I do the very best I can not to be completely unuseful to a bunch of people that do this every single night. When I first moved to Portland, I knew that if I was going to pastor in this city, if I was to desire to see the kingdom come here, then I would have to immerse myself in the needs of this city. So I did some Google searches and I found an organization where I could help dish out food to the hungry on Monday nights and that's how that became a simple weekly rhythm of service for me. And it's something important to me, something sacred because when I'm there I'm not the pastor of Bridgetown Church. I'm not a face that's known by anyone, I have no unspoken power of any kind. I'm just a slow to learn trying to be helpful but mostly in the way of volunteer. I'm Tyler just trying to follow Jesus and there's nothing more to it than that and you all get it I mean you you have to have environments also where you're not mom or boss or leader where you're not designer or teacher or restaurant server you're just a soul on the same journey with other souls trying to stumble along this narrow path behind the only rabbi worth following So there I am in this food service line aiming to immerse myself in the needs of the city that I'm still at this point just less than a month into calling home and it was there that I met a guy named Felix. And we got along, but there wasn't a whole lot of time for socializing and then the program director spoke to both Felix and me independently and asked each of us what we would think of getting together with the other one for a weekly one-to-one mentorship. He was matchmaking us. And that's how we started meeting regularly on Monday afternoons, and a couple months in, Felix found out that I was a pastor, and so he showed up to Bridgetown Church, and then he began attending this church regularly, and he went through Alpha here, and it was almost, Felix, I'm looking at you. It was almost a year ago today that I got to baptize you downtown at 5 p.m., And last week, when Kirsten was out of town and I was a single dad for a few days with three boys, it was Felix who showed up at my house with treats for my kids and played a hilarious game of two-on-two basketball with us and lightened the load of a really heavy weekend. And of course he did. I mean, Felix knows my family. He loves my kids. They love him. Uh, He attended every single one of Hank's basketball games, his first year playing basketball, and cheered hard for him by name right alongside me and Kirsten. He put together my kids' air hockey table they got for Christmas last year because I can't turn a wrench. (laughs) So he's not a weekly meeting. He is my brother. And in the 18 months that I have lived in Portland and served as pastor of Bridgetown Church, Felix has been the primary uh, place of discipleship to Jesus for me. He has shown me more of Jesus. He knows me deeper than most. And he's blessed me deeper than most ever can. And that is what Gregory Boyle, a Catholic priest who has spent the majority of his ministry serving a a greatly under-resourced community in Los Angeles, that's what Gregory Boyle has coined kinship. And in a time when justice has become a buzzword with all sorts of different definitions uh, from all sorts of different sources, I would argue that kinship is the distinguishing and defining aspect of justice the Jesus way. So a house of prayer for all nations. That is the biblical motif that captures our vision as Bridgetown Church over the next year. The first half of this vision series was all about prayer. The second half's been all about justice, but the whole thing about the essential, interconnected nature between the two. We've been exploring the justice side of the coin more recently. Justice is born from prayer, and it's sustained by prayer. Justice is a person. Justice is proximity. Justice is a reconciled family. And today we conclude the whole of our vision series with kinship, because that's the destination of justice the Jesus way. And in the Hebrew language and world that the scriptures emerge from, justice is defined in these three words, mishpat, hesed, and shalom, all of which together form this concept that we're calling kinship. So let's take those one at a time. First, mishpat is almost always translated into English as justice in our Bibles, but it's, it's much more broad than we typically understand justice because it involves both morality and legal justice, and it's almost paired with the Hebrew word righteousness. Uh, so in Deuteronomy 10, we're told he, meaning God, defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Now this English phrase, defends the cause, is actually just the single Hebrew word, mishpat. So there are material contributions here. God gives food and clothing to the marginalized, but there's more than just material need being met. There's also love and loves the foreigner residing among you. The immigrant, the immigrant, the refugee, or just the new neighbor that moves in down the block. Anyone easy to overlook by human eyes, we're told the eyes of God are drawn to that person in love. Psalm 103 says it like this, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. So the Lord is just to the oppressed. He is concerned about their suffering and cares about their felt need. But the Lord is also righteous toward the oppressed. That's about his character and his heart toward that very same person. When Solomon famously asked God for wisdom, God responded, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering mishpat, justice, I will do what you have asked. So Solomon was not only asking for proper governing decisions, Solomon was asking for a proper heart toward the people that he would oversee, a proper heart toward the city over which he was called king, and particularly the vulnerable within that city. He was asking for a heart like God's. The Peruvian theologian Gustavo Gutierrez writes, insofar as conversion is a break with sin, it will have both a personal and social dimension." And that is the biblical understanding of justice. You see, when we speak about justice culturally, we rarely give it any connection to righteousness, right? Justice culturally is human rights, it's basic needs, it's material provision of necessities, and it's equality and opportunity for all people. And all of that is good, but biblically, all of that justice gets bound to the heart change that comes through salvation. Apart from a heart like God's, there can only ever be an incomplete expression of justice, teaches the scripture. And and equally, the overflow of a heart like God's will always be justice. Which is why the apostle John wrote in his first letter to the church, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity of them, how can the heart of God be in that person? So the Apostle John is plainly saying to the church that if you claim to know and be filled with the love of God and that doesn't come out of you looking like mishpat, then there's something deeply wrong. Mishpat, and then there's hesed which is a word that translators really struggle to find an English equivalent for. So it's often termed in a combination of English words. So in your Bibles, it might look like loving kindness, or long-suffering, or steadfast love, or loyal love. If we had to choose one English word that matches it, compassion is the one that we have that comes closest But only if we know the the literal uh, meaning of compassion that's born from its roots. You see, compassion is a compound root word made up of the word calm, meaning with, and the Latin passio, which means willing to suffer for. The English word compassion most literally means to suffer with. And it's not to be trapped in suffering alongside someone that both of you can't escape. It is to willingly enter into the suffering of another that you could just as easily choose to stay outside of if you wanted. In Matthew's record of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, which is a pretty high bar to set. But in Luke's translation of the exact same verse into English, we we read, be compassionate, just as your father is compassionate. And that's because these two concepts are linguistically so tied together in ancient uh, Greek. So to willingly enter into the suffering of another is to mirror God's character. And biblically, hesed is joined to mishpat to define justice, famously in Micah 6. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, mishpat, and to love mercy, hesed, and walk humbly with your God. Likewise, in Matthew 9, we read, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, they're saying if Jesus was really sent from God, if he was really who he says he is, he would know the backstory of the people that he's breaking bread with and he would never want to be associated with them. And then Jesus responds this way, go and learn what this means. I desire hesed, not sacrifice. He's directly quoting the prophet Hosea. And sacrifice in that context means strict observance of a religious ritual. So Jesus is saying, hesed, willingly entering into the suffering of someone else, gets you closer to God than observing another religious ritual. He's talking to the priests of his day, and he's saying, if you want to get closer to me, then getting closer to the people you've excluded from the temple is going to get you nearer to my heart than running another service within the temple. So go and learn what this means, hesed. But even that phrase, go and learn, it can also be translated, go and find out. So Jesus is not saying, study Hosea better. He's not talking about library learning or book learning, he's talking about relational learning. Go and find out, immerse yourself in long-suffering love for someone else. And there you will find the heart that you're looking for me on the pages of the scrolls of the prophets. See, we have to find out because distance makes it possible for us to witness suffering but not have our hearts moved in compassion. But proximity makes that very thing nearly impossible. Right? We've all had that experience of watching a a series of distressing news reports. And you hear, there's been a break-in for a single mom. And uh, there's a missing child. And there's wildfires 500 miles away. And then we just yawn and flip to the next thing. But if you were to be near to those needs, if, if you were to sit next to the woman whose home was broken into, or if you were to shiver in the cold next to the lost and missing child, if you were to be with those who were fleeing their homes that were about to be engulfed in flames, that same suffering would move your heart deeply. It would be impossible just to yawn and turn away because the pain that we interact with up close, it always either softens our hearts or harden our souls. The pain that we interact with up close will will make us want to enter into the pain of the suffering or build walls in our lives so that we can get as far away from it as possible. What makes the difference of whether it softens us or hardens us? Hesed, Willingly choosing to enter into the suffering of another. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who famously said, only love gets close enough to know. And hesed is that. It means getting close enough to know, to suffer with. Hank, uh, my six-year-old and I, we spent our last few days in Colorado Springs, where I was teaching in a church that we relate to through 24-7 prayer. And I had a full schedule, like all kinds of meetings with pastors and conversations and uh, teaching engagements and things that are hard for a six-year-old to suffer through. But I did have Friday afternoon free, and so I wanted to reward Hank for hanging through all this. And I'd heard rumor that there was this indoor water park just walking distance from our hotel, and that is how I ended up at the Great Wolf Lodge <laughs> on Friday afternoon. Now, this establishment, which I had never been to before, is my nightmare under a roof. It is, it is America packed into one building. It is an indoor water park that also has an arcade and a putt-putt golf course and a Dunkin' Donuts and a Ben and Jerry's. And it's just all rammed into one room. But I'm trying to make memories with my son. So we're just going for it. I mean, we're doing all these slides together and we're having so much fun. And then eventually, Hank's kind of out of breath because we're going so hard. And he decides he's gonna take a little break in the wave pool. So I'm chilling on the side of this pool and there's this other younger kid who's in the pool and so Hank goes and approaches him because he's by himself. And Hank says, excuse me, are you looking for your mom and dad? And he says, yeah, I am. And Hank goes, okay, come on, I'll help you. And Hank just begins to go walking up to groups of adults who are total strangers to him going, hey, are you this guy's mom and dad? No. Excuse me, so sorry to bother are you this guy's mom and dad? No, sorry, that's not them either. And he's just doing this, he's just walking around and and in as Hank's going about which eventually he he did locate them but as he's as he's doing all this he's getting to know this kid's story I guess and it turns out that it was this young guy's uh, fourth birthday but he had no friends with him to celebrate his birthday and he shares this with Hank and so Hank comes back to me and he says hey dad I know that we had planned to do all these slides together and everything but This guy's turning four today, it's his birthday, he has no one here to play with him. Would it be okay if you played with me while we played with him in the pool instead? We're at the Great Wolf Lodge. (laughs) Everything around Hank is designed to make him go, let's try this next, let's do that. Can we get an ice cream cone? Can we? Everything around him is designed for him to say, me, 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 me. And he sees through all of it to the suffering of a lonely kid in the midst of that place. And he says, Dad, could we enter into that suffering with him? That's Hesed. it's Hesed. And I wondered, as I left that place, if maybe that's something of what Jesus had in mind when he said, unless you become like little children, you cannot enter my kingdom. Because, you know, Hank wasn't trying to be sacrificial or self-giving or noble. He just saw suffering through the eyes of Hesed love. But I know that as the years tick by in his life, every force in this world will try to retrain him to turn inward every force he interacts with will try to take that image of God that so effortlessly beams from him in a moment like that and dim it until it's barely noticeable. So here is life, Jesus says, the fullest kind of life, the only fulfilling kind of life, the eternal quality of life here in a dying world. It's Hesed. That in some upside down way that we can't understand but can discover, co suffering love enlarges and satisfies our souls in a way that self gratification and self promotion can never touch. So go and find out what this means. Hesed. But as you go, I need to state something up front that justice in the way of Jesus, it comes with a warning label. Results may vary. Some of you have been having a hard time with all this justice talk because you've been down that road before. And for you, it ended in disappointment. Your investment did not produce the return that you had in mind, or maybe it didn't produce any type of return at all that you can see. A few weeks ago, I shared the story of my godson, Ramon, who I met on his way to dropping out of high school. And then I got to witness this beautiful redemption as he met Jesus, changed his life, became the student body president of the high school he was threatening to leave, became the first in his family to attend and graduate from college, and now takes care of the ailing mother that he once resented. What a story to sit on a front row seat of. But as uh, someone that worked in a almost exclusively Puerto Rican and Dominican context for many years, I want a whole lot more than just one godchild. Because godchildren are a big deal, or godparents are a big deal in Latino culture. So there was also Andre, and he did drop out before I met him and he had to get a job as a 15-year-old to take care of his daughter. And so then I, when I met him, he was 19, and he became a chaperone in the youth group that I led, and he would stay with Kirsten and I in our 450-square-foot apartment every single Wednesday night. I took him out on his birthdays. I prayed with him. I laughed with him and enjoyed him. I held him as he wept and grieved with him. I helped him get a job, and I dreamed with him toward a redemptive future where he could grow into the man that he imagined becoming. And I also bailed him out of jail more than once. And I watched him lose himself to drugs and move from my home into the homeless shelter down the street where his habit could continue. And I watched him walk away, at least currently, from the very redemptive future that he and I schemed and prayed about together. And then there's Mike. I remember riding the subway in New York City one day a couple years ago, and it's really common to be asked for change on the subway in New York, and that's because it's the only place that you can get heat in the winter and A.C. in the summer, and so much of the houseless population just rides back and forth across the city underground all day. And this particular guy, he wasn't just asking for money, he was verbally accosting all of the passengers, pacing up and down the subway car, ranting about how no one sees him and no one cares for him and no one cares about him. And so everyone, including me, was just kind of averting their eyes and waiting it out. This guy was unhinged and potentially violent. And then about a month later, I finished preaching at the church that I led in Brooklyn at the time, and a member of my congregation, Chadwick, walked up to me on the front row with his arm around someone, and he said, hey Tyler, I want you to meet Mike. He could use some prayer, and I couldn't believe it. It was the unhinged guy from the subway And it turns out that Chadwick had met him exactly the same way that I did, with that same rant going on on a subway car, only instead of averting his eyes and waiting it out, Chadwick engaged him in conversation and learned his name and bought him a meal. And that turned into several meals. And a couple of weeks into building that friendship, he invited him to come to church. And two years after that, Mike was still a part of our church in Brooklyn. He knew everybody's name and everybody knew his, and he worshiped with us every Sunday. And I watched as members of that community fed him when he had nothing to eat and had him in their homes on Christmas morning when he had no family to go to and threw him surprise birthday parties and helped him find employment. So he went from panhandling to earning a legal wage and helped him find a room in an apartment that he could afford. And then another room when that one fell through. And then another room when that one fell through and helped him find the right rehab for his unique battle with addiction. So I'm the guy that averted my eyes and kept going with my life. But you know what the community around me did? they willingly entered into his suffering. But for the last six months that I lived in Brooklyn leading that community, I had to wake Mike up every morning in order to get into my office. And that's because he started sleeping on a pallet of cardboard boxes under the awning that covered the office front door. He'd committed and recommitted and recommitted to rehab, but then uh, we would personally take him to the center and then he'd always no-show at the last minute or just take off right as we were headed for the front door. He just could not bring himself to the scary journey of healing for his unique battle with addiction. And so every morning for six months, I'd wake him up from an often drug-induced sleep because I couldn't open the door with him lying right there. And we'd clear the cardboard boxes out together. He'd taken these two massive steps forward and one giant step back. And it was heart-wrenching and it was hope-filled. Heart-wrenching because I was watching him suffer. Hope-filled because I was watching a community enter into the suffering beside him. Hesed. So there you got three true stories. One a redemption, another a heartbreak, and one that's hanging somewhere fragilely right in between the two. All to say... Results may vary. But each one of those stories is an ongoing story. Not a single one has the ending written yet. And all of them hanging by this thread called hesed that we can willingly enter into but what about if you're the one giving the love? I mean, where are you supposed to go when sincere, open-hearted service, when willingly entering, entering into the suffering of another results not in redemption, but just in disappointment, sadness, anger, and disillusionment? Where do you take that to the God who spent himself mostly on people who never noticed? I mean, Jesus gave himself on behalf of the poor, the materially poor and the inwardly impoverished. Jesus watched as his crowd of disciples grew to about 15,000 and then shrunk steadily down to about 20, and only three or four of those even bothered to show up to his execution. So does God know what it feels like to be let down by people? And Jesus shared meals with, laughed with, prayed with, cried with people that he then watched testify against him at his own trial. Does God know what abandonment feels like? Jesus washed the feet of a man who he knew would sell his life away later that night. Does God know what it feels like to be taken advantage of? And with the last breath in his lungs, Jesus prayed forgiveness over the very people who had falsely accused him, beaten him, mocked him, and spat on him. Does God know what sincere love with no return on investment feels like? I'm just stopping for just a second. Because I just have a sense that there's someone, maybe just a particular individual, who you have loved like this, and it has resulted in a lot more heartbreak than redemption. And you have this uh you have this thing in you where your, your mind is always distracted by the state of this person that you have a long-suffering love for. And I feel like you're wondering if that's emotional unhealth or something that in some way you're not meant to carry. And I think that God is wanting to reframe that for you right now, that that is the love of the father, the prodigal father, of the lost son, who wanders back and forth in front of the window every day, looking at the edge of the property, longing that his son might be coming home, so I want you to know that 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 burden that is within you is a it's the image of God it is not something that you need to rid yourself of so if that's you, this isn't the sermon, this, I just want to offer that to you, and I pray, Lord Jesus, in the name of the Father, Son, and the spirit that If in fact you're speaking, and there's someone in this room right now that has been carrying that for some time, that you would meet them in a personal way in this moment. Would you come Lord, would you come Lord? And I pray that what is of you that is within them that you would affirm it and draw it to the surface and that you would hold them in that longing. And that they would begin not to carry it and wrestle with it like a beach ball they're trying to hold beneath the surface of the water. But that they would bring it to you, the only one who can steward longing like that. Let them redirect it to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's continue with the sermon, shall we? Um, Parker Palmer says this, What we usually learn once we are there is that there is no fix for the person who suffers. Only the slow and painful process of walking through the suffering to whatever lies on the other side. Once there, we learn that being there is the best we can do. Being there, not as cure, but as companion to the person who suffered on his or her slow journey. Hesed. That's what we have to give the world. Not solutions. If you were to drive a few miles up the road across the west side of the city, you'd get into the Willamette Valley wine country. And every vineyard there offers a tasting. A tasting where you can sit down and they'll pour you a tiny little bit and then some sommelier is going to offer you an obnoxiously, painfully long description of that little sip that you're about to taste. They'll talk to you about the way the sun hits the hill and exactly where it slopes down and the quality of the soil there and the wind patterns this time of year and what that does to the skin of the grapes and, and the climate and the air quality and how all of that is coming together to give this particular glass of Pinot Noir its flavor. And that's because there's a whole bunch of factors that growers can control and they can do to perfect the the quality of the grapes that you taste in that glass of wine. But there's also just as many factors that are totally outside of their control that make this year's vintage better or worse or just different and unique in character than last year's. And they go through that whole painful description because when you understand that what you're about to taste is not a predictable factory-bottled beverage, but is a labor of unpredictable love, then it causes you to savor it a little bit more and to taste the notes that they're describing and to enter into the story that has come together to give you this little sip. See, we are so tempted to relate to justice like it's a factory, like it's a one-size-fits-all approach that's gonna produce predictable results for us. But justice is a whole lot more like a vineyard. Like there's parts of this vintage that are under your control, but there are so many factors that come together to give this particular person's story its unique flavor and representation. But the well-trained palate appreciates that flavor that's brought forth by every steadfast, long-suffering labor of love. And maybe that's why when Jesus describes his kingdom, he tends to use agricultural metaphors, not factory ones, because results may vary. This is a vineyard, not a factory. Why do we pray? Not because it works. We pray because Jesus is worth it, and to be with him, to know him in the here and now, to walk closely with him is the greatest reward. Is prayer effective? Absolutely in the Pinot Noir sense, not the factory sense. Why do we do the work of justice? Not because it works, but because Ramon and Andre and Mike are worth it. And to spend ourselves on others, to enter into their suffering alongside them and wear it next to them, that's the greatest reward. Is justice effective? It certainly is, in the Pinot Noir sense not the factory one. There's two types of action. There's action for and there's action from. Action for is action done for a desired reward. And that's the type of action that dominates Western culture. I invest my time or money or labor to get something back. But action from is action that emerges from a conviction. I invest my time or my labor or my money because I've been given far more than I could ever give away. And the work of the kingdom is action from And that means it may or may not be immediately effective, but it's always worth it. And in the end, we find out hesed, the long, slow sort of compassion. It satisfies the human soul like nothing else ever could. So there's mishpat, hesed. And finally, shalom. Shalom is the destination that Mishpat and Hasid point to. It means peace, but in its fullest and broadest expression. Shalom is complete peace in my internal world and complete peace in our external world. Uh, Shalom is kingdom come. Shalom is heaven on earth. Shalom is what it looks like when Jesus is king. Shalom is Genesis 1 and 2, God's original creation as he intended it before it was corrupted. And Shalom is Revelation 21 and 22. It's God's garden city when all has been restored. And in between those two ends of the story sits Isaiah chapter nine, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And we will call him wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of Shalom. Shalom is a person And his name is Jesus. Shalom is justice completely and justice exclusively and justice finally. And Jesus shows us shalom not in a definition. It's too big and broad and beautiful for that. So he gives us a picture. Arguably his darkest, most cryptic of all parables. The one that we read for our teaching text. And the one that's usually called the rich man and Lazarus. Let me refresh your memory. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. And then this parable, it skips ahead to the apparent death of both men. The poor man Lazarus is at the side of Abraham. The rich man is separated by a great chasm, but he can see the two of them together, and he calls out to Abraham, "'I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers.'" Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And then the band began to play the closing worship set and Jesus sauntered off the stage. What a strange ending. I mean, it's like the lost television series of parables. Parables. Like, the plot drew me in at first, and I was, I was locked in, and then it just kept going and going and going, and then it just ended. What does it mean? Well, the, the heart of this parable is hidden away in the names and the numbers. So let's take a look at it from those angles. First, the names. Jesus assigns this poor beggar uh, outside the gate a name, Lazarus. Now first, there's just the significance of a name at all because in his 40 plus parables, Jesus only ever gives one name to one character, and it's here. A name sets this apart from every other story Jesus ever told, that should get our attention. See, by giving this poor beggar a name, Jesus was humanizing him. He is not a nameless face or a statistic to regret or a pitiable stranger, he's Lazarus. He's someone born to a mother and a father and into a family who carries a story just like you and I do. He was dealt a hand of circumstances at his birth, and he might have played that hand as best as he possibly could. Or maybe he he played it horribly. But either way, a name means that Lazarus is more than his circumstances. He is more than his poverty. He is more than the rags that he wears and more than the tarp that he sleeps under and more than the scraps that he survives on. You see, we tend to know the names of the prestigious and powerful. Right? In Jesus' day, everyone knew names like Herod and Nicodemus and Caesar. And in our day, everyone knows the names of celebrities and politicians. But Jesus doesn't give a name to the prestigious and powerful character in his story. Only to the forgotten and powerless one. And that's because God's economy flips ours on its head. Right? The last will be first and the first will be last. The greatest among you is going to be like the one that serves. Oh, the widow that threw in half a penny, she gave the greatest offering of all. Jesus names the nameless and the unknown, and that tells us something about Lazarus. But it tells us even more about Jesus. But there's more than just the significance of a name. There's also the significance of this name because names carried huge significance in ancient Israel. Names were given as a descriptor of a person's destiny or calling. They were about identity far more than just a phrase that someone would be named or called by. And the name Lazarus comes from the Hebrew Eleazar which literally means God has helped in a cultural time and place, uh, Jesus is pointing to the one thought according to the priest to be furthest from the help of God as the one that God is reaching out to to help. God is the helper of those who the religious system and social structures don't have a place for. God is drawn to those that we tend to willfully ignore or unconsciously overlook or pity from a safe distance. Lazarus means all of that. So Lazarus is a name charged with meaning in general for anyone listening, but Lazarus is also a name charged with meaning for Jesus personally because Lazarus is one of the uh, names of Jesus' closest friends. Lazarus is the one whose table Jesus sat and ate at again and again and again. He's the one whose loss Jesus wept over. He's the one whose tomb Jesus said come out. Lazarus is not a project or a mission, but a friend to know and be known by deeply. By choosing this name for this man, Jesus is saying all that. Simply with a name, Jesus is saying, The marginalized, the oppressed, the rejected, the forgotten, the sick, the suffering, the needy, I know him. I know him personally. I know him by name. But this whole name thing, it only gets us halfway home because the rest of the parable is all lost in the numbers. I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. At first glance, the most obvious moral that we draw from the story is that the rich man is being punished because he was not merciful. He did not care for the needs of those who were in poverty around him. But you gotta push past the first glance and look closer at the story and hear what Jesus said. The rich man, dressed in the purple of royalty, living in luxury, allows Lazarus, a poor leper, to live at the front of his gate and eat his excess food. Now think about that. This is the front gate of a private residence. The movers and shakers of Jerusalem are coming in and out of Lazarus' home for their business dinners, passing by a houseless leper. And houselessness is one thing, but to be associated with a leper in this time in history was thought to associate yourself with spiritual contamination. This rich man, in some very real way, is making social sacrifices to care for the needs of Lazarus. He's, he's letting him crash at his gate. He's feeding him leftover filet mignon after the business dinner. On some level, he is taking risks to care for him. I mean, how many of us have a homeless, terminally ill patient living on our porch? So this man cares for the needs of the poor. There must be something going on here beyond just a lack of mercy. So what is it? Well, the key that unlocks the story's meaning is the rich man's request. Send Lazarus to warn my five brothers. He's urgently concerned for his people, his siblings, his family, far more than he's ever been for the man that he's now trying to use as a messenger. Dr. Leonard Sweet concludes the rich man is condemned because he thought he had five brothers, when God had actually given him six. And the theologian Joachim Jeremiah referred to this not this story not as the rich man and Lazarus, but he called it the parable of the six brothers. This was not a sin of mercy; he helped Lazarus. It was a sin of kinship; he did not see him as family. He did not embrace him as brother. He did not welcome him all the way to his table as his own. He did not include him in his real community. This rich man did not lack mercy. He alleviated Lazarus' suffering on some level. He lacked relationship. He did not enter into that suffering with him. He did not get close enough to know, in the words of Bonhoeffer. He kept him in a particular space, as a particular project. Why would he do that? Because isolated acts of service and generosity are easier than welcoming someone all the way in so that they can be fully redeemed. Parker Palmer again, this is always our temptation when we set out to do good, to do it in a way that leaves us above the fray. You see, proximate service to the poor is the first step. That's where we have to start, but we must never confuse the first step with the destination. David Fitch, while most churches have programs to reach out to the homeless, destitute, or broken peoples, rarely do we minister to them by making them a part of our congregation. Our local congregations look strangely homogenous in comparison to our vision and programs. The destination is not service provider and service receiver, the destination is the one that I began as service provider to, I now know as brother. The destination is not bread for every hungry belly in Portland. It's the one who began as a hungry belly in Portland, now sits across from me breaking bread in my community, as brothers or sisters to one King Jesus in one redeemed family. You see, the truth is, and anyone who's ever done the work of justice can tell you this, the truth is is that the person who begins as service provider always ends up with at least at receiving at least as much, if not more than the one that they've given to. The truth is that I am the lucky one to have crossed paths with Ramon and Andre and Mike because they have introduced me to far more of the person of Jesus than I've ever introduced them to. Kinship is a way of justice that embraces mutuality. Justice gets distorted when it's this one-way relationship. I give, you receive, then we both go back to our separate lives. Justice is biblical, it is Jesus, when justice is mutuality, when it's an immersion in relationship that puts me and you on level ground. Gregory Boyle says, in the end though, the measure of our compassion lies less in our service of those on the margins and more in our willingness to see ourselves in kinship with them. It speaks of a kinship so mutually rich that even the dividing line of service provider, service recipient is erased. We are sent to the margins not to make a difference, but so that the folks on the margins make us different. Shalom expressed between two people. It looks like kinship. It's Felix playing basketball with me and my kids on a chilly Friday morning offering to help me on a particularly full weekend. That friendship might have started with service, sure. But service is nothing more than an environment where kinship can happen. And it has. Kinship is what distinguishes Jesus' vision of justice from every other one. And kinship cannot happen from a safe distance. It is inconvenient and costly and involves you in relationship. Kinship enters into and relieves the burden by sharing it, by loading some of it on my own shoulders. It means that stranger is not just a mouth to feed or a statistic to correct or a face to pity or a cause to champion. He and she is brother and sister. Shalom means that's who he's made us to one another. Jesus loves people, not causes. Shane Claiborne writes, don't choose issues, choose people. Fall in love with a group of people who are marginalized and suffering, and then you won't have to worry about which cause you need to protest. Then the issues will choose you. See, we live in a city that is absolutely obsessed with issues, but is almost entirely separated from the very people those issues are affecting most deeply. And if we're going to do justice in the way of Jesus, we cannot champion issues. We have to love people because Jesus, he did do justice. Remember, he got into the temple and he started flipping tables over and he brought the blind and lame in with him. But you know what? Jesus, before he ever did any of that, he learned the names and the stories and entered into the suffering of a whole lot of blind and lame people. Jesus did justice from shalom, from kinship. And so if we're going to be a people of justice, we have to start with shalom between brother and sister, and that's called kinship. Why does your teacher eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees were never offended that Jesus would serve the marginalized or be a missionary to the outcast. They were offended that he would sit down at a table with them, that he would treat them as equal and count them as family. Kinship. That's what got Jesus killed. The priests running the temple didn't mind if Jesus wanted to do some volunteer work on the side. The offensive part was that Jesus was family to the poor and he would not have it any other way. Pete Portal says the poor don't need sandwiches and shoes. They need a place at your table for the next 20 years. And that's what Jesus gave to the poor throughout his life and gave to all of us in his death and resurrection. He gave us a table a heavenly banquet table that we can sit at next to him for all of eternity. That's what Jesus gave and gives to you and me. He is the rich man who stripped off his royal garments, who closed the chasm between us and who said, I will not let you live at my gate as a beggar. I will welcome you to the table among royalty and treat you as family. I will share my rightful inheritance with you. That's who he is and justice is the response born from what it feels like to sit at that table with that king. That's what justice is. So our practice for this week is the same thing I keep talking about. It is to enter into this regular rhythm of justice, serve the city one way, once a month. And look, I've beat this drum as hard as I can, but let me just say one more time, service is not the destination but it is the starting place. It is the environment where kinship can develop. It is the place where justice can happen. And justice is not a one-off. It is a lifestyle. It's not a rhythm that we observe so we can get back to our regular lives. It's a rhythm we observe so that the whole of our regular lives become motivated by this thing called justice. And we go about our day to day, all the ordinary environments that we come and go from as an agent of justice. And if you're in a Bridgetown community, this should already be a part of your rhythm. And do you know what happened to me this morning that made me weep? at my kitchen counter while several children were noisy all around me. I got this email from Gavin, and he said, hey man, I want you to know that our people aren't just hungry for this, they're digesting it. In less than four weeks, we've gone from 10% of our communities serving the city monthly to 81% of our communities serving the city monthly. We're in the place kinship can happen. What a joy it is to be a part of a people of practice, a part of a people that wanna get this stuff lived. So well done, and let's keep going. Results may vary, but let's see what stories he writes. And if your community hasn't entered in yet, then I just want to say one last time, don't miss out. Don't miss out. It's too good to miss out. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about as I'm referring to communities, and I want you to know that at Bridgetown Church, the whole of who we are is built around communities that meet midweek around a table. That's where we get all this stuff lived. It's the heartbeat of our church. If you're not in a community, the way in is through Community Basics. We're running it again in January, just with the new year. We'd love for you to come and be a part, but you don't have to wait to join this rhythm. You can go as an individual to Justice and get in on this right now. We would absolutely love for you to. So to close, not just this teaching, but the whole of this vision series on prayer I've got this phrase from the prophets ringing in my mind that goes something like the days are coming declares the Lord you read something like that over and over again in the prophets and then it it, what comes after it is these future dreams of what the kingdom is going to look like when this revelation gets expressed through people's lives And I've just been dreaming from the beginning of this vision series back in September through that phrase, the days are coming declares the Lord when, and I turn that phrase kind of as a springboard into prayer. And so I wanna close by reading that prayer over you, hoping that maybe some bit or piece of it might not just be my prayer, but might stay with you and be our prayer and then become our reality. So would you stand with me? And I just wanna read this prayer over you as we close. And then Bethany's going to come and invite us to ministry. Let's pray together. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when my people will be wooed, romanced, and drawn to me in prayer. When I'll soften heart and hearts with compassion for the city of Portland and her people as they pray, Kingdom come each morning. When neighbor, colleague, friend, family member whose name you pray at midday will worship alongside you on Sunday. When ordinary life is blessed and savored by gratitude. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when prayer will define this house. When those very prayers that gather this house become, uh, come to send this house. When we become our prayers and discover kinship with the hungry, the addict, the hopeless, the lonely, the refugee, the prisoner, the widow, and the orphan. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when a house known for feeding the church continues in that identity but equally becomes a house known for feeding the city. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when encounter is a word that makes us think not only of the front of a stage but of the margins of our city. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when reconciliation isn't a buzzword or a topic for discussion, but an all-nations reality previewed here among us. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when you, Bridgetown Church, will inhabit the identity, a house of prayer for all nations. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.